Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Emma Ashford, Senior Fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and co-founder of this show. Emma, welcome back. Great to be here. Let's get right into it. There have been many indications that the Russian military has underperformed in the sense of running into logistical and tactical blunders, being seemingly unprepared for the strength of the Ukrainian response. Describe some of what we've seen in this respect and explain what significance you place on it. What do you think it says about Russia's overall capabilities? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess let me start by caveating this by saying that we're recording this on the 28th of February. So we're about five days into this conflict. By the time you hear this, we'll be a little further along. Um, what, what we've seen so far has been, um, quite frankly, very confusing. For, for a lot of people that follow the Russian military. And now this is not something I myself am an expert in, but I've done, you know, I've done some work on it in the past. I, I listen closely to those who do. Um, and, and what we've seen doesn't look like the Russian military advance we would have expected to see before this conflict started. Um, one possible explanation is that the Russians were trying to do this very lightning strike approach to the war in Ukraine, where they were trying to seize major cities, look like they'd taken the initiative, look like they'd taken a bunch of territory, topple the government, and do it without civilian casualties. Um, and that has failed at this point. The Russians have made significant progress. We, we, shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't be fooling ourselves about that. They have made significant progress on the ground, but they've done so in a pretty patchy and uneven way. And there have been a number of kind of high stakes gambits that have failed. Things like inserting paratroopers in to take one of the main airports in Kiev, which then failed when the ground forces did not punch through on time. Um, the Russians haven't established air superiority over Ukraine fully yet, which again, very surprising for those watching um, who have some background in how Russia does these things. And so, as I say, I think there's two explanations. One is that that they had this strategy that called for uh, you know, a different kind of operation than the Russians usually engage in, right? So they usually apply overwhelming force. They don't really care about the impacts on civilians. We've, we've seen this everywhere from Chechnya to Syria. Um, so one, one theory is they were trying to avoid the, the collateral damage, and they're not very good at it because this isn't something they do very often. Um, and then the other explanation, I think, is that we have overestimated the effectiveness of the Russian military in general. Um, I'm less persuaded by that theory. Um, I, I do think this was a case of Russia trying to um, act on tactics they're not as used to. Um, but, but I think we should leave open that possibility. And, and if over the next couple of weeks, you know, we, we see the Russians continue to get bogged down, um, as opposed to what it appears they're doing now is sort of taking a break and refocusing their, their strategy and their tactics. If, if we see they're still bogged down in several weeks, I think that second hypothesis starts to look a lot more likely. A number of European states have increased aid to Ukraine, from Germany and France and the UK to the Netherlands and Belgium and Slovakia. Especially as Ukrainians receive increased support from the West, I imagine this could either drag things out uh, or become, and become something of a quagmire for Russia or it could pressure them to come to some sort of arrangement to end active hostilities. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so I have no hesitation in saying that I'm, I'm confident the Russians did not expect this level of support from Europe. I did not expect this level of support from Europe. We have gone 
in about a period of a week, we have gone from the Germans being unwilling to do anything other than supply some helmets in a truck on neutral territory um, to the European Union supplying the Ukrainians directly with weapons. There has been a sea shift in how uh, Europe is approaching this question. Um, and I, th I think there are two big problems. So the first one is, um, you know, the Ukrainians may not be able to absorb all of these arms. Um, things like, um, you know, small arms, things like, um, you know, stingers, anti-tank weapons, um, things like logistical supplies, food, fuel, um, body armor, stuff like that. Um, that's probably quite helpful because that is gear that you can distribute easily to large numbers of conscriptees. It's stuff you can train people on pretty quickly. Um, so that is probably really helpful. Um, and my, my guess is that the, you know, that, that is really only being constrained at this point by just how much the Ukrainians can take at any given time. Um, the more high-end military systems, I think, are more questionable. You know, there was some, there were stories about the European Union um, is going to supply fighter jets um, to Ukraine from their own sort of old Soviet stores, from uh, old members of the Warsaw Pact. Um, you know, unless the Ukrainians have a sizable pilot reserve, which I'm not aware of, I don't see how you use those quickly. Um, and the same goes for any number of other weapons that it's hard to train people on quickly um, and, and sort of hard to get out there in the field. So I think, you know, there are, there are definitely some limits in how effectively the Ukrainians are going to be able to use some of this stuff. The second point, though, is, as you say, um, it's not clear what the long term dynamics of providing the weapons to Ukraine are going to be. I think right now where we're in this situation where it is clearly a legitimate Ukrainian government, um, a democratic government that is resisting the Russians, where they still have control over their armed forces, um, you know, the, the risks of, of supplying these weapons are relatively small. Um, but at some point in the coming weeks, we may well move into a scenario where the government in Kiev has fallen or perhaps they've fled uh, to, to one of Ukraine's Western cities and set up some kind of government in exile. Um, we may move into a situation, in short, where the Ukrainian resistance is more on the lines of guerrilla resistance to a Russian occupation or to a Russian um, puppet government. And at that point, I think weapons supplies um, start to become riskier because everything we know from sort of the literature on insurgencies and civil wars um, is that supplying weapons outside parties, supplying weapons to their proxies tends to prolong these conflicts. So, you know, that I think right now I'm not overly concerned about the weapons shipments, but in some weeks or a month, if this goes badly for the Ukrainians, I think that's when we're going to have to start asking ourselves those questions. It would seem that Putin exhibited some overconfidence and underestimated the costs and potential international reaction to this. And this is not too unusual. We can talk about a number of cases where U.S. leaders have done the same thing, but it has generated some discussion among analysts about Putin's rationality or state of mind. And I just wondered if you had anything to say about that. Yeah, so we'd certainly know that um, Putin has been listening to a very small group of advisors on this question. Um, everything that's coming out of Moscow suggests that not only were the sort of elites outside government blindsided by the war, um, but, but many elites even inside the government do not appear to have been consulted until quite late in the game on this invasion plan. 
Um, and so Putin appears to have done most of his planning with a relatively small group of senior military and intelligence leaders, the people closest to him. I mean, even the diplomats appear to have been left out of the loop until quite late. Um, and this is probably a big reason why we're seeing so many stumbles as Russia sort of comes out of the gate on this invasion, uh, because they didn't incorporate, you know, head of the central bank. They didn't incorporate the diplomats. Um, they didn't incorporate the folks that might know that Ukrainian resistance would be stiffer than anticipated. So, you know, I, I think there's um, a fairly clear correlation here between Putin um, having this very small decision-making circle and some of the failures that the Russians have had. Um, and I will say, um, you know, this this fits very closely with, again, what we understand from the literature on sort of personalistic authoritarian regimes. Um, so, you know, in, in regimes like Saddam Hussein's Iraq or in North Korea under the Kim family, um, you know, we see these very... Um, these strongmen figures who sort of rule through personal diktat and who have a relatively small group of decision makers around them. Now, Russia has not always been like that, even in the post-Cold War space. Um, but what we've seen, I think, in, in recent years, and particularly in COVID, is that the decision-making circle around Putin has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And so he's getting information from far fewer sources. Um, and, and back to your question about rationality, right? I, I don't think the right question about rationality is, um, you know, is Vladimir Putin a rational human being? I, I think the question to ask is one about bounded rationality. Is he making, he's probably making rational decisions based on the information and advice he is getting. Um, but if he and his inner circle are buying their own propaganda, that's not going to look rational from the outside. Um, and so I think that is the big concern here is that that inner decision, that inner decision making circle um, is so insulated from reality that they may find it difficult to make rational decisions. Hmm. So he's increasingly isolated internationally. Sanctions are, are going to bite. The Russian economy will suffer. But Notably, these sanctions are more punitive in nature than instrumental. They aren't trying to compel a certain action or behavior from Russia. And so there's no obvious off-ramp to get them lifted. Are we sure that beyond hurting the Russian economy, the sanctions effort will actually have the desired effect on Putin's decision making? No, I don't believe we have any confidence at all that it will shift things in a in, in a better direction. The the sanctions that are being placed on Russia now are a gamble, a significant gamble. Um, and I think again, it's important here for for those who have thought about sanctions again in the context of you know U.S. sanctions policy against Iran or Venezuela or North Korea. You know, I I think it's really important here to clarify the stakes that we are talking about are quite significantly different. Um, not just that Russia is a great power, um, you know, very connected into the world economy, um, but we've also gone from relatively minimal sanctions on Russia um, all the way to blocking sanctions on the Russian central bank, again, in the course of about 10 days. Um, you know, if you look at cases like Iran, um, you know, we implemented sanctions like that over a period of years. Um, so the shift from, you know, moderate sanctions to incredibly severe sanctions has happened 
very fast. Um, and some of these sanctions are liable to have significant impacts on the Russian economy. Um, so blocking the central bank, um, for example, from uh, from reaching its uh, reserves abroad, um, that is going to have an, a, a serious impact on the Russian government's ability to conduct monetary policy. Right. Can it shore up the ruble as the ruble collapses? No. Can it um, shore up central bank? Uh, can it shore up rather Russian banks as they collapse? No. Um, and so, you know, we've gone from this position where I think a week ago, uh, like many others, I was saying, well, the sanctions will be punitive. They'll hurt a lot, um, but they're probably not going to change Russia's calculus. Um, the sanctions that have been put in place are far more severe than I expected or I think than many observers expected. Um, and while I don't necessarily think they're going to change the Russian calculus here. Um, I think there is some potential for bringing Russia to the negotiating table as long as there's a clear path to lift them in exchange for, for Russian concessions. What kind of broader consequences do you think we should expect? There are already large numbers of Ukrainians fleeing the country, which we know can have regional impacts uh, as neighboring governments try to manage those refugee flows. There's economic consequences um, that are likely to have regional and global impacts. Cyber warfare is also an element to watch for. So just talk about the kind of broader consequences beyond what's happening on the ground in Ukraine that we should be thinking about. I mean, I, you know, I am among those now saying that I think this is going to be a very significant moment in history. You know, I think when historians look back, they're going to see this war as the start of a number of key shifts um, in how we think about global order, in how the global financial system functions. Um, and so, you know, just to give you a few examples here, and we can, we can talk through some of these further, um, you know, we've seen uh, the German chancellor get up and say that his country is getting serious on defense. They're going to spend more than 2% of GDP. They're going to arm the Ukrainians. Um, they're building new LNG terminals, right? The, the Germans have done a complete about face on European defense in the last, um, again, in the last week. Um, and they maybe won't follow through with it, but it's kind of looking like they might. And if they do, that's going to be a significant change for world order in terms of, you know, making the European Union a military player in, in the world. Um, in terms of global financial markets, right, we're already starting to see conversations about energy flows shifting. Um, you know, Europe's dependence on Russian energy um, while it wasn't that big a deal in the context of smaller conflicts, um, it feels like many in Europe are increasingly seeing this as a strategic liability, that they would rather pay higher prices to import gas from elsewhere, from Qatar, from the US, from Australia, rather than being beholden to Russian gas. Um, and if that's the case, then what we're probably going to see um, is not a sudden shift because it would simply be too damaging to have a sudden shift. But what we're probably going to see is a long-term shift of Europe off of Russian gas, Russian gas starting to flow to China instead. We'll, we'll see a, a real shift in the landscape of, of energy. Um, speaking of China, you know, China is almost certainly watching these sanctions. Um, these sanctions are incredibly punitive. And I think Russia in particular, many observers, myself included, I think, underestimated the extent to which that exposure to international financial markets could be used to really hurt Russia. Um, or at least I think we underestimated the extent to which policymakers were willing to use something this extreme. 
Um, China's going to be watching that. I wouldn't be surprised to see massively increased efforts by the Chinese in coming years to insulate themselves against that kind of risk in a future conflict. So again, that's a big change. We could see further global decoupling. Um, I think the economic shocks of this crisis are going to reverberate for a long time. Um, and then obviously, as you said, you know, there's the refugee question. There's the question of whether Europe is going to remilitarize along a line a la the Iron Curtain. Um, so, you know, th this is a very long winded way of saying that I think there are potential significant shifts in almost every realm of security um, as a result of this conflict. Right. You, you wrote in the, uh, in the New York Times that the Russian invasion of Ukraine may be a turning point signaling the end of the post-Cold War period. And I want to just uh, unpack what you mean by that. What, was, what, was, uh, what characterized the post-Cold War period that is now going to go away? Yeah, so um, so I wrote this piece. I wrote it about a week ago. I wrote it like six hours after the Russian invasion started. So um, you know, take with a pinch of salt anything that's that's in it. Um, but but you know, to me, it seemed like the big story at that time basically was that we've had this thirty-year period of the unipolar moment. We've had um, an America whose military dominance, financial dominance. Um, has been largely unquestioned during that period, right? Very much a, a general assumption in Washington, D.C., in Europe and elsewhere, um, that, that U.S. power can pretty much achieve what it wants to. Um, yes, there are failures like the war in Afghanistan or Iraq, but, you know, the U.S. public paid basically no price for those misadventures. Um, and, you know, even in conflicts like Syria, Right, where the US decided not to actively intervene, um, we were nonetheless able to shape the outcome of the conflict to some extent. Um, you know, certainly we engaged in pushing back ISIS. Um, and my, my feeling is that we're now entering an era where the US can expect to face not just competition, the way that Washington has been talking about it for like five years or so, um, but where the U.S. can expect a, a number of its choices to be contested. Um, that is to say that there's going to be places where um, the U.S. simply won't be able to change things. Um, so if Russia invades Ukraine, if China invades Taiwan, where the balance of interests is such that America probably has to acknowledge that if it's not willing to fight a full-scale war, there is very little that we can do about it. Um, and so I think that that is the world that we're headed into. And, and it's been coming for a while, right? I don't think this war is the thing that actually changed that. I think this war is the thing that has made that apparent to more people. So I guess one of the questions in that equation is, is whether or not U.S. policymakers will respond accordingly. Um, they've, as we've mentioned before, overconfidence and underestimating the costs of the status quo and so on uh, infects many thinkers on this score. So, um, for example, you mentioned increased European defense autonomy. Do you think that's something that U.S. leaders will encourage and see the benefits of or try to discourage as it has in the past? 
Well, so the good news is that I actually do think we're in a place where there is some openness to that in Washington. Um, you know, I think it's it's not even just this administration, right? This administration had already, before this crisis, signaled its openness to European defence spending. They had um, accepted the PESCO would exist. That's uh, the permanent structured cooperation the European Union was trying to put together on, on European defence spending. So um, th- this administration has already been somewhat friendly to that. And then I think over on the Republican side, um, we're seeing an increasing number of sort of very hawkish Republicans taking the the Trumpian line that Europe can't free ride on the US anymore, that they have to pay for their own defence, that the US has to focus on China. Um, and so I think the the proportion of Washington that thinks that European defence capacity is a bad idea is shrinking pretty rapidly and was even before this crisis. Um, now, I will say again, I think the administration, the Biden administration, has handled this crisis relatively well. Um, they haven't um, taken the most hawkish approach they could have. They've issued very, very clear statements um, about uh, where our red lines are so that the US is not going to invest troops in Ukraine. We're not going to um, you know, engage in this conflict directly in any way, but that NATO member states are our red line and we will protect them. And so I think you know, that's pretty close to the optimal um, messaging that you could hope for from an administration here. Um, I'm a little more concerned on the side of sort of the financial sanctions, which I think may be perhaps a little more draconian and a little more risk of escalation than I would have liked to have seen. Um, But again, I I think the administration has taken a relatively good approach here. It just remains to be seen, I think, whether they're going to get punished for not taking a more hawkish line by people here in Washington. Another one of the things you mentioned is, um, you know, Europe uh, getting off of its dependence of Russian gas and that gas maybe going to China. And this kind of unifies Russia and China a bit more. Um, and that's considered a strategic uh, problem to rectify by U.S. policymakers. Do you have thoughts on how to square that circle, so to speak? I have even heard some policymakers suggest in the last couple of weeks that perhaps pushing China and Russia together is a good idea. Um, Because then I I think the assumption is then that the Chinese will get fed up with Russia's um, impetuousness um, or that the Russians will get angry about being the junior partner. Um, and that they'll pull apart naturally. I think that's the theory. I'm not sure I buy that theory. I I do think pushing Russia and China together is is really problematic. I mean, if you go back to some really really old school IR stuff like um, you know Mackinder talking about the Eurasian heartland, right? Um, we've always tried to avoid pushing together great powers that could dominate the Eurasian landmass. Um, and I think even if we do see a significantly increased sort of Western and Central European military force arising here, so even if the European Union becomes a, a decent counterweight to Russia, um, I'm not sure it's a great idea to push Russia and China closer together. That said, I I will say again, I think the notion that China is going to save Russia here is also overblown Um, because we've seen a lot of conversations about whether the Chinese are going to help Russia circumvent U.S. sanctions. Um, 
you know, whether they're going to step in and bail out the Russians. And, you know, I, I think those were open questions two weeks ago. Um, but I, I think now we're already pretty clear that the Chinese might help the Russians by, you know, fiddling around the edges of sanctions, maybe help them to source um, things to substitute for some of the export controls that have been put in place. But I don't think it's going to actually bail the Russians out from the biggest financial problems they're having. I think the Chinese are just too unwilling to take that risk for, for Moscow. You talked about uh, increasing numbers of constraints in uh, the geopolitical space for the United States going forward. Um, and one of the things about that, that post-Cold War era that we talked about was, you know, a lot of times U.S. diplomacy would be used most robustly to support some military objectives. Um, and now that we have more constraints, I wonder if you think the military element will uh, subside a bit and we'll find more opportunities to further our interests diplomatically. I certainly think we we need to rebuild our diplomatic capacity. I mean, I think that's been clear for quite some time. The State Department has been hollowed out and the Biden administration has not really been able to do a lot to fix that. Um, I'm not even sure they've made a huge effort to do so. Um, you know, one thing I will say is I think, you know, we need to rediscover the ways in which we can make our military and diplomacy work together more effectively. Um, the, the, the pathology that I think a lot of thinking in Washington has fallen into in the last three decades um, is the notion that, that everything America does with its military is you know, deterrent in nature. Right. We're we're always deterring bad actors. We're supporting the world order. Um, and we really only send in the diplomats, um, you know, to sort of resolve situations where the military has kind of started the process for us. Um, and I, I think we need to maybe get back to thinking a little more in a Cold War mindset. That's not to say that where we're going is necessarily going to look exactly like the Cold War, um, but we need to get back to the notion that our military is there not necessarily to achieve U.S. ends, um, but the military is there for protection. The military is there to be a shield, and then the diplomats and the economic statecraft and all of those other tools of statecraft, they're there to actually try and, you know, make gains, resolve conflicts, try and find, you know, arms control agreements that we can all live with. Um, so diplomacy becomes much more important in an era where military strength can't simply achieve what you want it to achieve. Um, and I do think that's that's sort of where we're headed, is a world where we're, we're going to have to get a little smarter about diplomacy and go back to some of the sort of, I mean, you know, Kissinger and Nixon going to China is often overblown. But when you think about that, that wasn't about the military at all. That was a really canny diplomatic move. We need to get back to that level of creativity, not just thinking that the military is going to solve every problem. To play on that a bit, um, I was going to ask you a question slightly outside your area. It's not a security question per se, but this issue of, of refugees is concerning to a lot of people in a situation in which the United States has limited options for what it can actually do. Um, I wonder if you think welcoming refugees is a sensible policy in general, but also strategically, it might reflect well on us and uh, give us an advantage in that sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I would be 
happy and open to welcome Ukrainian refugees. I think, honestly, again, I've argued this before on Syria, Libya, and a lot of other conflicts, that this is this is one of the most effective things we can do, is, is give people fleeing these conflicts a place that they can that they can stay that they can contribute um and it builds um sort of america's strength as as much as it helps those people um you know in this context i think we could also think about some of the more outside the box ideas of like offering visas to Russian intellectuals and scientists. Russia has a real brain drain problem. They have had for years. Um, we could help to accelerate that if we wanted. And again, it would almost certainly rebound more to our benefit um, than anything else. Now, I know the politics of migration in America are complicated, right? Um, and so this may not happen. But I, I do think we should look quite favorably on the European Union's early moves in this space. Um, the European Union has basically said that all Ukrainians can live and work within the EU for at least three years, no restrictions, before they even have to think about applying for asylum. Um, they've also offered a variety of other avenues for people fleeing the conflict. And, you know, again, we can we can be cynical and we can talk about why the European Union is, is offering this now to Ukrainians when they weren't really willing to offer for it to Syrians or Libyans or, you know, Africans fleeing some of those conflicts. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's important to just point out that in this situation, the European Union has really stepped up on the refugees question. We talked about how Russia has incurred, I think, some unexpected costs from this. But at the same time, there's some commentary from some an analysts suggesting that uh, this is kind of only the beginning. Uh, Putin may try to push uh, at the Baltics in some way as well and make a broader point about Euro European security. Then again, we talked about this may have been too costly a gambit for, for Russia to try to leapfrog into some other theater. Uh, I wonder if you think about um, the security situation along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question. Um, and this this might be somewhere where you and I disagree a little, John. So I, I mean, I think that the security situation in Europe now, with Russia having gone into Ukraine, with Russia being an effective control of Belarus, I, I'm not convinced Belarus is going to be an independent state three months from now. Um, that does change the security dynamics on the ground. Um, Eastern Europe is going to need to rearm to some extent. We're going to need a larger deterrent force along NATO's eastern border. Um, I think the most important point there, however, is I really don't think it should come from the United States. Um, this is where, again, Europe really needs to step up on defence, where we're already seeing quite promising noises coming out of Europe. Um, and I think it's important that this be done in a way that is sustainable, long term, and that's Europeans taking responsibility for their own defence. Um, now, I mean, I don't think that Putin plans to take back the Baltics. I, I really do think there's a there's a very concrete difference there. And, and I will note just for, for Russia watchers out there that Putin has um, several times in his own speeches carved the Baltics out of his, you know, he's talked a lot about the former Soviet space and how important it is. Uh, um, and then he's basically exempted the Baltics. Like he he's actually gone out of his way. Even Putin, who often says things that are quite out there, has gone out of his way to imply that he's not after the Baltics. So, I mean, obviously you can't be sure of anything though. And this is why I think, you know, we do need to be talking about, you know, building up 
in, in Europe. But we need to be talking about doing it in a smart, sustainable way where most of the burden is carried by the European states that are closer to the conflict. This, this cannot be the US swooping in to save Europe from Russia um, because we simply don't have the capacity to do it. Um, we do not have the capacity to build up in Europe and to focus on China and to think of all the other problems that are out there. So this is this is a case where we really do have to think about, you know, not even just pushing Europe, because I think Europe is moving on its own. We have to think about how we can facilitate that. Emma Ashford, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.